Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, February 25th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, with medical marijuana on the 2020 ballot in November, we hear from a medical professional who supports the measure. Then, a study compares Mississippi's gun violence with the rest of the nation. Plus, it's been 50 years since the Ole Miss 8 were expelled from campus. Who were they? We talked to the attorney that represented them. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In November, Mississippians can decide if they want medical marijuana made available to people suffering with conditions like cancer and chronic pain. A coalition of 75 health care providers and organizations are gearing up to promote the referendum called Medical Marijuana 2020. Dr. Rachel Knox of Oregon is a cannabis medical specialist. She shares her position on the benefits of cannabis with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Cannabis is a genus of plant that comes in a variety of chemical profiles. We call those chemical varieties. But we like to divide cannabis into two categories, one being hemp and the other being marijuana. Um, In the United States, we have an arbitrary definition that differentiates hemp from cannabis, or excuse me, hemp from marijuana, right? They're all cannabis. And that definition is anything above 0.3% THC is marijuana, and anything that contains 0.3% THC or less is hemp. So that's what medical marijuana is. It's just marijuana. It's just cannabis of 0.3% THC or more. In terms of the need for medical marijuana, why? Why is there a push now? So we're living in a world where one in two adults is sick with something, And the burden of chronic prescription drug use is beginning to weigh on people. Uh, I think folks are fed up. Uh, Patients very commonly have laundry lists of prescription drugs that come with unwanted side effects. I think there's a movement right now in the patient population to move away from synthetic drugs, drugs into more natural lifestyle. And that includes the tools at their disposal that they use as medicine, right? We're, we, we are seeing people convert to natural medicine in droves. Um, 
there have been some observational studies that have demonstrated that in states that have medical programs that have dispensaries, meaning facilities that provide access to cannabis medicine for patients, that there is an associated decrease in the amount of prescription drugs that are written for the conditions that the state um, has approved for, for cannabis use. That includes opiates. We are seeing a reduction in opiate prescriptions. We're seeing a reduction in hospitalizations due to opiate um, misuse or abuse in states that have legalized medical cannabis. People are choosing cannabis at increasing rates. You said that people don't want to get high. That's a interesting way to put it. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of folks think that a medical program is an excuse to um, legalize the ability to get high. Cannabis has been used as medicine for centuries, centuries, centuries. I really do believe that prohibition is what has stimulated the the, the, the recreational vice of cannabis, wherein the higher the THC potency, the more valuable a product is. And what we're seeing in the medical space is really a reduction in the desire to achieve that high. Now, but what that high experience is, is actually a euphoria. Now, it can tip into intoxication, and many people do want to avoid that. Most people don't want to be inebriated, but some people could benefit from a little euphoria. Think of patients with depression or PTSD, where depression is a factor of that condition. A little bit of euphoria benefits those patients. So it's all about time and place. It's about clinical need. It's about using THC and CBD and the alphabet of the cannabinoids when and where they are needed. And um, just from my experience, the majority of the the clinical patients that I see tell me they don't want to get high. They don't. They want to treat their conditions. They want to get off of their many pharmaceutical drugs, or at least try to, or at least reduce them. Um, folks are not just trying to come up with an excuse to get high. That's, that's, that's nonsense. What would be an example of some of the treatments that um, this would work for? The most common reason patients seek medical cannabis is chronic pain. We do have a chronic pain crisis in the United States um, for a variety of reasons. I think followed by cancer and epilepsy and PTSD. Um, Like I mentioned, one in two adults are sick with something, and most people are looking for a natural alternative in this day and age. Dr. Rachel Knox is a cannabis medical specialist from Oregon. Democratic Representative Amelia Scott of Laurel, a breast cancer survivor, continues to author bills to make medical marijuana legal, but none have passed. She tells our Desiree Frazier she supports the initiative. I have had, as a matter of fact, two hearings on uh, the legalization of medical marijuana, but the reason that I became interested in this issue is because I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, a very serious diagnosis in 2017. And I took my treatment in Texas at MD Anderson. And when I was over there, uh, there were a lot of people from other places who had um, drops, they had food, they had all of these things that uh, they were able to get from medical marijuana dispensaries in their states because it was legal. And that helped them through all of the treatment that we had to take. And, of course, it was not legal in Texas. It's not legal in Mississippi. So 
we were unable to afford ourselves of any of that treatment. Why not? Uh, why does this bill receive pushback, you think? Well, I have no idea why this bill would receive pushback when you have many states that have legalized uh, medical marijuana. I mean, our, our sister state right here in Louisiana has legalized uh, medical marijuana. Right here in Arkansas, which is a sister state to us, has legalized uh, me- medical marijuana. There has not been any, you haven't had anybody to say that any person has had anything to their detriment as uh, from going to a dispensary in states where marijuana for medical purposes is legalized. And given the opioid crisis here in Mississippi, and we know that people are using um, uh, medical marijuana in these states as a step down to get people off of uh, these uh, opioids, I would think that the people in Mississippi would certainly be in support of it, and not to mention the economics of it, in that we are a, a state that has a lot of agriculture, and this could be an economic boom for, uh, for farmers here in this state. So what are people saying to you when you put forth these 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 bills? You know, uh, privately, you know how it is, uh, uh, Desiree. Privately, people will say, I'm for this, but, you know, they don't think that their constituents would support it. And that's the reason why it is a good thing that the initiative has passed, because the initiative will will work the will of the citizens of the state of Mississippi. And I do believe that this initiative is going to pass. Amiria Scott is a House Democrat from Laurel. State Medical Officer Thomas Dobbs has recently expressed concern over the initiative. He says he believes the potential benefits of cannabis medicines need to be researched more and that the proposed initiative could create legal concerns. Um, Other things that are very worrisome include the fact that it's going to be a constitutional amendment. It would not be able to be changed. So if we if we really discovered the, the vaping um, of, of THC was dangerous and deadly, it basically would prohibit us from regulating that. So those are a lot of the concerns. And the other thing that, that's concerning, and this is something the Board of Health feels really strongly about, is it basically would give taxation and spending authority to a board that has not been elected and would basically be against the you know the normal oversight principles of, of state government. Coming up, a study compares Mississippi's gun violence with the rest of the nation. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Recently released data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control 
suggests that states with the highest rates of overall gun death in the nation are those with weak gun violence prevention laws and higher rates of gun ownership. That's according to a new violence policy center analysis of the CDC data. Kristen Rand is the legislative policy director for the violence policy center. She says, according to VPC's analysis, Mississippi has the highest gun death rate in the nation. We look primarily at what states add to federal law. Federal standards are very low. Um, They don't, for example, there's no permit to purchase, there's no registration, there's no control over the most lethal type of firearms. Um, There are modest restrictions on who can buy a gun. And Mississippi law really adds nothing to federal law, so we characterize, characterize that as weak gun laws. And when you say higher gun ownership, how is that determined? Um, well, we look at um, academic studies. That data is actually fairly difficult to come by, but there are several academic studies recently who have estimated um, state uh, household gun ownership rates. So that's what we use. With Mississippi being number one, are the other states that follow soon after southern states for the most part? Um, what we have is three states in the top five are southern. We have Mississippi at number one, Alabama at number two, and Louisiana at number five. Uh, three and four are Wyoming and Missouri. In the past, has Mississippi been towards the top or at the top of the list? They have been near the top, but I think what's striking about looking at the historical information on Mississippi is we've seen a steady increase in your gun death rate. Um, In 2009, you had a rate of 16.5 per 100,000 people, and that has steadily risen to what we see now in 2018, which is 22.8 per 100,000. And that your rate has just steadily climbed over that time period. What is the rest of the country seeing in terms to pre- in terms of previous studies? Um, well, I mean, we just see the same pattern repeat over and over again that the states with the highest gun death rates have weak gun laws and high rates of gun ownership. And then conversely, we always see at the bottom, the same states just kind of move around at the bottom five. This year we saw Rhode Island at the bottom, followed by Massachusetts, Hawaii, New York, and New Jersey. And those states all share much stronger gun violence prevention laws and very low rates of household gun ownership. A common defense for gun ownership, uh, supporting gun rights, is that people should legally be able to have a gun because people who do not purchase a gun but steal guns or have them illegally are a bigger threat. Do you have a response to that? Well, I mean, what we do know is that, you know, the the biggest proportion of gun death is suicide. Um, So that's mostly people who have a gun in their home and then they have an episode of depression and use that gun to kill themselves. And then what we also know is that most homicide occurs between people who know each other in the course of an argument. Very often people who are related or, you know, just have an existing relationship. So the idea that I think the fear that sometimes drives gun ownership is that the fear of stranger attack, and that is incredibly rare. And in fact, we only see 
usually less than 300 cases where a civilian kills a criminal in self-defense each year, and oftentimes that those occur between people who know each other. You said 300 cases. Is that nationally? Is that in Mississippi? Yes. Nationally? That, no, no, that is nationally. It's ju- justifiable homicide by civilians is extremely rare. It's also very unusual for people to just wield a gun in self-defense. Um, a very, 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 very small percentage of cases where people are victims of crime do they wield a firearm in self-defense. So the, the myth of self-defense is really just that. What state had the least number of gun deaths? And, and tell us about their laws and uh, gun ownership. Rhode Island has the lowest rate of gun death. And we have to look at rate because if you look at number, then you can't compare, you can't take account of population. So Rhode Island has the lowest gun death rate, and that's 3.5 per 100,000. I think if you just step back and compare that with Mississippi's, which is 22.8 per 100,000. Is the Violence Policy Center an advocacy group? Yes, we are. We, we do advocate um, for, for significant changes in um, gun laws. So some might say that that your data is skewed because you have a dog in this fight. Well, but what we're doing is just taking data that's collected by a federal agency and analyzing that data. I mean, we've done nothing to to manipulate the data, um, and then we just compare it to the existing studies looking at household gun ownership. So it's all just factual. Kristen, is there a place where people can access this report? Yes, you can see it at our um, website, the Violence Policy Center, www.vpc.org. Kristen Rand is the Legislative Policy Director for the Violence Policy Center. Thank you very much, Kristen. Thank you. Coming up, it has been 50 years since the Ole Miss 8 were expelled from campus. Who were they? We talked to the attorney that represented them. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The 2020 legislative session is underway at the Mississippi State Capitol, and at issue is the place to be for gavel-to-gavel coverage. Lawmakers are expected to discuss a number of issues like criminal justice reform, teacher and state employee pay raises, and workforce development. Join me, Wilson Stribling, along with our political analysts, Brandon Jones and Austin Barber, as we bring you insight on these issues and how lawmakers are handling them. At issue, Friday nights at 7.30 on MPB TV. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In February 1970, eight students who were protesting for some time what they felt was racial treatment against black students at Ole Miss marched on to the stage of the Fulton Chapel on campus, extended their arms, clenched their fists, and stood for a moment and walked off 
That was John C. Britton, a professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia School of Law. This week, Mr. Britton and five of the eight students he just described are returning to the campus of the University of Mississippi to commemorate the night eight black students stood in protest and faced the punishment of imprisonment and expulsion. In part one of our two-part conversation, Mr. Britton recalls the events of February 1970 and how he, a young lawyer, came to represent and 89 black students during a period of protest and tension. The uh, university immediately started to round up 81 other students on campus who had no connection with the group that went into the Fulton Chapel. The university sent some students to Fayette County Jail. They sent even more students to the dungeon of a state prison at the time, and still now, called Parchman Prison Farm. I was just six months out of law school working for the North Mississippi Rural Legal Services Program. All 89 students retained me. For the students who went to Parchman Prison Farm, I drafted petitions for habeas corpus, the ancient writ to challenge the detention of any persons on the grounds that it was illegal, and the prison authorities released those persons just about 48 hours. The the students in the Lafayette County Jail were released in 24 hours. The local prosecutor filed misdemeanor charges against all the students, with trespass and with disturbing the peace. I clogged up the system by filing requests for a jury trial for each of them. The prosecutor soon dismissed all of those charges because the local municipal doctor was so blocked. From the prosecutor's standpoint, did did they do that, uh, assuming that these students might have the resources or the representation to, to, to challenge those charges? What was, what was the strategy from the, from the DA and the prosecutor side regarding that kind of that move? The legal services program, which had a financial limit for qualifications, allowed us to uh, determine that these students were emancipated for purpose of representation from their parents. And therefore, as college students, they were too poor to forward a lawyer and fell within our guidelines. I'm not sure the prosecutor anticipated that they would have a lawyer like that in Oxford, Mississippi, and who knew enough strategy to file these demands for a jury trial. Even if they weren't eligible for a jury trial, they would have to hold a hearing. And that would clog up the municipal docket for other criminal and civil cases for some time. Was there any pushback at the time from the community Uh, regarding the the prosecutor's decision to charge all 89 students? There was pushback from the black community, especially since I had just filed the first school desegregation case against Oxford and Lafayette County in December of 1969. That mobilized a lot of support, including from students. And when the community found that the University of Mississippi and the Mississippi Highway Patrol and other law enforcement 
had dragged these students, particularly 81 innocent students, who had nothing to do with the demonstration, from the campus and sent them to the dungeon of a state prison farm, there was outrage in the Oxford community. The remaining eight, uh, referred to as the Ole Miss eight, they were subject to punishment outside of, you know, outside of the law, but from the university itself. What happened to those those eight students that took the stage? As to the 81 students, they were summarily suspended and given a kind of citation without them really knowing it. As to the eight students, where I again requested a hearing, I prolonged that hearing throughout most of the spring 1970 semester. And we had a final hearing before the chancellor of the University of Mississippi and other administrators. At the end of that hearing, the university appeal committee voted to suspend these students, but in fact, they expelled the students forever from the university. John C. Britton represented the Ole Miss aide in 1970. He's now a professor of law at the University of the District of Columbia School of Law. In part two of our conversation... Up to now, this had been a secret. It had been silent. There had been no word of it. That's tomorrow on Mississippi Edition. A a commemorative ceremony for the Ole Miss 8 will take place today at 3 o'clock at Fulton Chapel at the University of Mississippi. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.